0: Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Helen Garner in conversation with Charlotte Wood. Charlotte Wood's The Luminous Solution is a book about how thinking creatively can help all of us to live richer, more wholehearted lives. In this essential work, the much-loved and award-winning writer shares the insights and experience she has gained about creative thinking over a career paying close attention to her own mind, to the world around her, and the way she and others work. Drawing on her doctoral studies in creativity and decades of writing, conversation, and immersive reading, she explores what artists might have to teach the rest of us about intuition and perseverance, risk, and the wonderful exhilaration of departing from safe territory. Before we start, a quick reminder. As this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Christine Gordon.
1: Good evening. My name is Chris Gordon. I am the Programming Manager for Readings, and on behalf of Alan and Unwin, and on behalf of your favourite independent bookshop, Readings, I am delighted that each and every one of you is joining us this evening. And while I'm welcoming you, I want us all to consider the land on which we stand, the land that is not ours, the country that has not been ceded. And I would like to pay absolute tribute to the First Nations people. And I think that when we do these sort of acknowledgements of country, it has become perhaps a little glib of us all to stand up and say, We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land when I reckon we need to be doing a little bit more. We need to be saying thank you for the stories, thank you for the songlines, and thank you for the grace of letting us live in a land that's so beautiful, in a land that makes so much sense if we just stop and listen to those First Nations people. And so here I am standing in front of all of you, Saying welcome. At the moment, I'm speaking from the Kulin Nation. And on behalf of each and every one of you here, I would like to pay my respects. I would like to pay my gratitude. And I would like to say, as a community, thank you to the First Nations people. Thank you so much. And when I start thinking about the stories and the songlines that make up this beautiful country, it seems to me that there are other people that have arrived in this country that have made it their life's work to also make sense of who we are and why we are. And, of course, in this way, I this is my segue to introduce Helen and Charlotte to the stage. Now, Helen is someone that has been writing about Melbourne for my whole entire life. She doesn't need an introduction, but I would Like to just draw a little on her latest lockdown diaries and say, this is the type of authors that we have in front of us here today. Helen writes in the latest monthly As the world closes in on itself, the simplest acts grow mythic. A woman reports shifting a tree in her garden that was not thriving. I used a mattock, I lifted it above my head the dirt fell all over me what i want you to imagine as we welcome helen and charlotte to the stage that it is not the dirt raining down on your head but rather it is the words it is their words and it is their gift that they are giving us tonight and please can we make helen and charlotte who need no introduction very Very welcome. Thank you for this extraordinary introduction,
2: full of imagination and fantasy. Uh, I'm happy tonight to be here uh, talking to Charlotte about her book, which is called The Luminous Solution. And I thought that because it's a collection of essays, I thought that rather than sort of ramble loosely over its very broad territories, we could zero in on a couple of the sections that I particularly found wonderful and get our teeth into those. So I'd like to start, Charlotte, if this is all right with you, which I know it is because we've already planned it. I would like you to read a passage and it's in a section which is called reading is not shopping. You can imagine that there's um, some tough words coming up here. So this is a three-page section, and it opens up for our discussion some really interesting points. So can I get you to launch into that?
3: You can. and But just before I do, I first of all want to say that I'm speaking to you all from Bulla-Namming, which is the traditional name for the Marrickville area of Sydney, and I pay my respects to the Elders, past and present. Uh, and any First Nations people who might be here with us. I also want to say huge thank you to Helen Garner for agreeing to do this. It's a staggering thrill to be talking with you tonight, Helen. And we've had some excellent um, laughing exchanges over various things, over text the last few days. So I will shut up now and start reading as requested. So this is from a chapter called Reading Isn't Shopping. Why Creativity Needs Disturbance. Some time ago, I found myself spending the weekend with a collection of pictures I didn't much like. I'd volunteered as gallery attendant for a friend's group show. The paintings had been chosen by a renowned contemporary artist I loved and I trusted his judgement. I knew that the works, many by highly respected painters, were understood by him and other gallerists and artists who visited the show to be good pictures. Nevertheless, many of them disturbed me, not because the images were of disturbing things. They were portraits, abstract works and landscapes. So my unease was not to do with what they were, but rather how they were. The colours were often murky or garish. Some of the pictures looked to have been painted too quickly felt unfinished to me. Sometimes the composition was inelegant. A few seemed almost violent in their chaotic application of paint. Quite often, they were just too strange, too mysterious to me. I simply couldn't understand what the hell they were doing. When I found two or three pictures I liked very much, the relief I felt was substantial. Ordinarily, when I see pictures I don't like in an exhibition, I just walk on by and don't think about them again. When I see pictures I love, I don't question why. But sitting there in the gallery in silence, with nobody but the odd visitor stepping quietly through the space, I had time to interrogate my conflicting feelings about these works, to think about what was causing my unease and my relief. What was it? that made me feel either good or bad on looking at these images. One aspect of my discomfort was to do with the fact that people I respected had judged these pictures to be good. I had to acknowledge that beneath my dislike was a feeling of shame, that they could see something I couldn't. This led to a kind of loneliness and a level of anxiety. And I was alarmed to find that lying deep beneath all of this was a distinct, fine, but primitive layer of anger, anger born of the fear of something I didn't understand. After a little while, I realised that the level of either discomfort or relief on first looking at an image was a result of how recognisable the picture was to me, in style, in subject matter. The ones I liked were the kinds of paintings I have on my own walls at home. Interestingly, they were also the smaller works, perhaps more containable for me in some way, not only physically, but psychologically. The paintings I found most repellent, by contrast, were those most unlike what I might buy for my walls. They were huge, often dark, with a presence that felt almost hostile. As I broke these feelings down, I was forced to confront that what was happening inside me was a kind of visual xenophobia. I don't know much about art, but I like what I know. A few days after my duties as gallery attendant, I received an invitation to another group show in another gallery. This was an exhibition of landscapes, and I could see immediately that they were serenely beautiful. But when I looked through the catalogue of paintings, I was surprised to find something new at work in my consciousness. It was as though the so-called ugly pictures had somehow entered me and these new paintings, which I would ordinarily have liked very much, now seemed to lack some strength or energy. They were too calm, their colours and composition too familiar. I realised I'd undergone some transformation in the presence of those other pictures. It seems that without the irritating stone of discomfort and disorder, even the strange, shameful anger that formed in me while I absorbed them, I could no longer find real pleasure in a tasteful, orderly painting. Looking at the new landscapes made me feel slightly tranquilized. There was a short-lived surge of initial pleasure as I saw and recognised and appreciated, but the feeling quickly faded leaving an empty sort of outline. I can't now remember anything much about those images. The whole experience made me want to take a closer look at what's going on when a work of art, a work of literature, has the capacity to make us feel bad. And how we respond to this as individuals and as a culture.
2: One thing I really love about that passage is the way that you work your way patiently through those, that range of feelings that come over us when we're looking at some piece of art. I was really thrilled to see that you dug right in and you found at the bottom of this resistance to certain works about anger. uh, Mm. There's a a kind of a move, the move in it psychologically is there's shame because you think you're ignorant and dumb and everyone else knows more than you. That goes to a sort of lonely feeling We think, oh, I'm out here on my own and not able to appreciate what everyone else is appreciating. And then you become anxious and then comes what you call a distinct, fine, but primitive layer of anger. Anger born of fear of something I didn't understand. See, I wanted to cheer when I read all this because it seems not only does it describe (laughs) a range of feelings that I'm very familiar with, but... It, it seemed to link up with the kind of hostility that I know that you have copped, particularly as a result of your novel, The Natural Way of Things. That, And I was really interested to read on in this chapter to find the sort of remarks that people made or the sorts of people who say, oh, well, I'm not going to read that book because I just c- can't face it. Or I know there's Mm. something in that book that I'm not going to like and so I'm not going to read it. And the characters in this book and in your other book, The Weekend, which apparently got up some older women's noses, I don't like them. They're not like me. I'm not going to read it. And I I was very uh, struck by that and struck by um, some of the little stories you told there about apparently the the doctor who spoke to you. in
3: Yeah, um, yeah you want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, it is, you would know probably perhaps more than anybody about the kind of range of emotions that readers will sometimes come to you with. Um, I mean, I've been lucky to have readers who've loved lots of my work, but every now and again you get someone who wants to sort of take you to task for something that they think you've, it's a sort of disapproving little lecture that you might get, or there's a kind of other angle which is sort of congratulating you for landing on something that's going to make you a bit of money which is what the the West Australian doctors one was quite disturbing to me because I met him at a um at a festival and he was a friend of one of the people on the board or something and he said oh so my friend over here told me not to read your book because he said it was so gruesome sort of hard to know how to respond to something like that so I just spent Oh, did he? Oh, well. And, you know, started looking for an exit. And then he said, in a way that I found kind of a little bit creepy, he said, so tell me what it's about. And it was kind of like he obviously already knew something about what it was about. And I said, well, it's not a pleasant read because it's about young women being imprisoned and who've been sort of sexually assaulted in some way. And he sort of then seemed to find that he said, oh, well. I mean, that sort of stuff, there's a real market for that sort of stuff, isn't there? So, you know, you should do pretty well out of it. I just didn't know how to respond to that, you know, because I was horrified, obviously. Anyway, I just got away as quickly as I could. But it echoed something that, other, you know, a couple of other people had said to me. One of whom was a writer who said to me on social media that she was not going to read my book because she didn't approve of trading in violence. And I found that kind of more staggering that a writer would say to another writer, I'm going to denounce your book even though I haven't read it. And also to do it to to you, like to tell you that, I found that kind of really astonishing. There was a sort of moral disapproval on one hand and kind of weird money-making approval on the other when obviously those impulses have have no part in, in what I thought I was doing. But, you know, you've also got to acknowledge that you are incredibly good at what your underlying emotions and motives might be, you know. Like I think what really disturbed me was that I had worried about those things immensely while I was writing that book. So they really hit a nerve in me and made me think, well, I need to think about this. What have I been doing? What are the responsibilities for a writer when you are, writing something that you kind of know is going to make people feel bad. And I still haven't really formulated an exact set of feelings about that.
2: Yeah, I know what you mean. I, it, it seems to me that's a constant uh, flux that you're in as a writer, if you're writing about, you know, modern times or even slightly future times. that That links up with the whole problem of, let's call it, relatability that you have also spoken about in this essay in a way that I found extremely interesting. Uh, all the, the things that the American writer Rebecca Mead said about, you know, there, there are a lot of readers who don't want to read books about characters that they would not like if they if they met them. That That's something that, that always really surprises me.
3: Yeah, especially when they're fictional characters. They're, they're not real. So I had a couple of people, one woman said that, she hated the weekend because she and her friends so the weekend for people who don't know anything about it is a bunch of women in their 70s who are friends old old friends who get together to clean out the house of their dead friend and you know there are frictions and things go awry a woman said that she she hated my book because she and her friends were of that same age but these women were nothing like me and my friends <laughs> and again you sort of go did she say this okay. to your face or in a letter? No, in, in on social media. But to me, you know, like so knowing that I would see it, sort of addressed to me. I mean, I think things that people say about you in another place is totally fair game. They could, you know, say what they want, which is yeah. why no author should ever go on Goodreads or anything like that. But when they come to tell you that you have disappointed them in some way because, you know, I mean, I don't know what she thought I don't know why. We're well, just
2: disappointed, but the, <laughs> the ones that you, you have outraged by actually taking yeah. a certain topic uh, even, and, and the ones who say, I'm not going to read this because I know what's in this book and I know I'm not going to like it and I think it's terrible and I don't think you should have written it. Well, I mean, that, yeah. I'm not talking about social media because I don't, I'm don't. i not on social media, but I'm talking about stuff that's happened to me in the past that I could just... I just frequently quite flabbergasted by the, the number of people who'd say, I know what this book is. And Yeah, I mean in some in some ways it's sort of sometimes I think maybe it's
3: sort of flattering that people that it has this great power for them, you know, that that they are so angered by a book that is not going to do what they want that they sort of um need to tell you or to take you to task in some way but you know and other people another woman emailed me to say that she had she'd wanted to read The weekend, but then she heard that a woman in the book um, had a relationship with a married man and gave me a big talking to about how damaging women like that are to other women blah, blah blah and about she was obviously deeply distressed about her own marriage and what her husband had done I mean I sort of find it I felt sorry if, for her, to be honest, to think that you are so distressed by what's happened to you that you I need haven't. to contact a complete stranger, you know. And this woman said, look, everything's fine with me and my husband now. And I thought, mm, I don't know about that. If if you need to come to me with this, I'm not sure that it's as resolved as you think it is. So, you know, and again, it was like, and, and she sort of wanted me to convince her to read my book. You know, why should I? <laughs> like, lady, I don't care, <laughs> you know? I also kind of want to say, you know, these people are not real, you know. But again, then I think, well, maybe that's the power of of fiction. I like that. I like that she thinks so. (laughs) I don't know.
2: I wanted to quote this, something that's from the book, about people who get upset because the book doesn't please them in some way or it doesn't confirm Mm. them in the way uh, they they think life should be. This woman, Rebecca Mead, says, this is you, I think, uh, paraphrasing her, the onus of responsibility has shifted, from a reader's capacity to thoughtfully interrogate how she might see herself in the work to a desire for the book to do the work for her, to hold off her appreciation or analysis until it first proves itself reflective of her life and her concerns. I was really struck by that. So the whole idea of relatability is um, kind of a problem. And, And you say further down that page, we've been slowly but thoroughly trained to see the world in terms of its capacity to please us. You call that a customer service perspective.
3: Yeah, and I think in a way, you know, the stuff that we were just talking about, that the woman saying, these these people are nothing like me, you know, it's sort of like it had the tone of I need to speak to the manager because I have been (laughs) misled and, you know, I haven't got what I want, so therefore, (laughs) you know. And, and then, you know, as I say in that essay, there, there is a thing with some books where you're supposed to get your money back if you don't like it. But from from the publisher where you have to email them with 150 words of why you didn't enjoy the book and they'll give you your money back. You know, if I got my money back for every book I didn't like.
2: <laughs> I wanted to bring people's attention to the very end of this chapter The fact that when you went back and had another look at the pictures you didn't like, this is real. I love this bit at the end of the chapter because our our desire for the world to be a charming place is completely blown out of the water by your final paragraph in this. Do you want to say what it says?
3: So I said that the most pleasing way would be to come back and see that I have um, learned something from this and now the pictures look beautiful to me.
2: Yes, yeah.
3: But now we're at the end and I'm looking at the pictures again and I still don't like them. I still find some of them ugly. I still don't understand what they're doing. But in their, quote, radical otherness, they have forced me to think and that is suddenly more transcendent and precious than beauty.
2: Yes, that's what I wanted you to say. Oh, yeah, sorry, read the rest. I'm released from dull. Oh,
3: I'm released from dull egotism from the childish demand that I should always get what I want and it's the difficulty itself that shines. You know, it's a. It's something that I think a lot of people who do read um, like to talk about that it seems to have crept up this idea that books should be pleasing. You know, of course, I want books to be pleasing, but speaks to the other issue, which is about having unlikable characters. So The weekend, you know, lots of people said the characters are really dislikable, but it's still a good book. And I found that very funny. And also, I always think about that. It depend what you like, whether they're unlikable. Like I really like spiky people who are, you know, not crawling for your approval. Um, and I'm reminded now of my friend Georgia Blaine, who died a few years ago, who was a much-loved writer, who many, many people here will will have loved her work. And Georgia said she was always in trouble for not having likeable characters. And she said to me, you know, I wrote this last book and I thought, I really, this one's really likable, <laughs> and they still said, "Oh, she's horrible," and um, and Georgia was always like, "They're they're all kind of like me, these women." So, I don't know how to take this how unlikable they
2: are. I remember, I think you know, Patrick White who said that all his characters are him, especially the women. <laughs> yeah, well, I would, yeah. I'm sure that's true. I just wanted to talk about. There's a, another section in this book that I really liked a lot its title is of gods and ghosts and it talks about the fact that you uh, were raised a catholic and it's about what you got from that what you learned what it taught you and what was left of it after you stopped being what you would call uh, a believer in god i thought this was a very beautiful chapter and in a sense, it's. Um, I was going to say this is my other favourite chapter in the book, and what I'm, I'm, I'm just interested in what you took from the Bible, not not just the content, but the way it's written.
3: Shall I read that bit? Sure. I have to say um, that today, I know that um, it's been a really horrible day in Melbourne, pandemic-wise, and I feel absolutely really you know, I really feel for you, the only thing that you can be glad about is that you don't have a new premier who's a right-wing anti-abortionist. So reading this stuff about what I got from Catholicism on this particular day in New South Wales is kind of interesting to me. But a lot of this chapter is about how growing up as a Catholic girl, I kind of absorbed from birth that girls were of no interest or consequence for God because I never heard anything about them in the Bible. And, you know, then I had priests say really stupid things like feminism is evil. So, you know, I rejected Catholicism as soon as I could on on leaving home and leaving school. And yet I could reject it all I liked, but it, it was too late because it had got into my bones. And there were actually all kinds of kind of great things that it gave me. So... There was also a delicious soaking cadence to the language of the Bible with its repetitions and rhythms, its rocking two-by-twos and 40 days and 40 nights, its seven years of good luck and seven of bad, and there was a mystical potency in the symbols of apple and serpent and loaves and fishes, every mundane object rich with the possibility of another life, carrying layers of hidden meaning purely by existing.
2: Well, that links up with something I noticed about your way of writing, which is that it's it's very rich with um, material objects.
3: Interesting you say that because I feel that I learned quite a bit of that from you. Oh, really? And I remember an cool. interview you did a million years ago on, not a million because we're both so young, but um, when you had written The Spare Room and I remember hearing it and writing it down. You were talking about objects as a writer and how they objects will do an awful lot of work for you if you just respect them. And they they do have enormous resonance, don't you think? And you've done, you know, in the spare room particularly, I remember loads of sort of very resonant objects that are very mundane objects, very domestic household things, but the writer can make them into something holding a whole lot of compressed meaning.
2: Mm. Well, that, of course, that, that is um, something that I know when I finally read the Bible myself 20 years ago, I sat down and read it from front to back and, knew, I mean, really that's just such a scheme. But it was marvellous. And, and I, I, I was just amazed at the, um, what I learned was the sort of concept of, and this is what I think you're talking about here, is that there are these emblematic objects uh, they are objects that sort of radiate meaning and sometimes it might be just a little pancake or, or a stone or some tiny thing. It doesn't have to be a magnificent or beautiful thing, but, but uh, the physical objects the material, and material, things in the material world seem to radiate meaning and you, you don't have to put it there you, as a writer. You just have to put the object there and it will do its work especially if you strip off a lot of descriptive language all around
3: it. Yeah, you have to choose an object that doesn't already have a whole lot of freight around it. You give it the meaning by the way you place it or position it in relation to other emotional things. Uhtar Hagen, this American acting teacher that I had not heard of until a very nice friend told me about her she has a whole thing about inner objects, what she called inner objects. She said everybody has these inner objects that they, and she was talking about acting now, of course, that they can use as a kind of source of energy that, and she said something like polka dots on a shirt or whatever, so that for the actor to hold this in their mind and then I think of it as a little kind of glowing stone around which accretes all the necessary, you know, energy and emotional life that they then have to project mm. so I really like that phrase inner objects and I think I've taken it to use in a whole different way that she never meant but it's it's just it's it's useful to me to think like that
2: mm. yeah I haven't ever thought about it in, in a uh, purposeful way like that I mean I haven't thought of it as a concept but it just the world just seems to be sprinkled with Mm. objects that are, are meaningful to me. I wonder if that's um,
3: something. So you just need to notice them, right? You just need to notice the objects that, that hold your attention particularly.
2: Yes. Anyway, the object that you need when you're writing something will, will sort of leap out of the surrounding <laughs> landscape and, and uh, hit you right in the nose I mean, if you're walking around receptively. Yeah. Do you want to talk about ambivalence? I mean, you may have forgotten this, but on at, at the end of this chapter on Gods and ghosts, you because you obviously historically you've developed a sort of revulsion for the for the, what's really terrible about the Catholic Church and its crimes. But by the same token there's some kind of um, you know the, the the ability that you need to sort of hold two things in your mind at once, which brings a certain charge of energy to things.
3: Yeah, I think so. what I kind of realised through this whole book, which is, you know, I guess about the the impulse to write or to make art or to make anything, but I I've kind of thought for an artist of any kind, that ability to hold more than one thing to be tr- like contradictory things mm. to be true at the same time mm. is kind of really crucial. and you know, when I thought about my Catholic upbringing and all the stuff it had given me, both good and bad, I realised that actually it sort of trained me to be an artist in a way because, like, it was sort of easy to to banish it, you know, at 18 or whatever and go, that is just outrageous. The Catholic Church is evil and fucked and I will never have anything to do with it again. Well, that was easy. But it, it had lodged in there, you know, and I, I quote Janine Burke in this essay as well, the very well-known art critic and writer who talked about being brought up Catholic and, and abandoning it because basically she got kicked out of school for being, um, you know, reading a, a terrible book, uh, which was uh, James Baldwin, I think. But she said, but but I needed something to then fill that space in me that had been opened up to to." the uncanny and the mysterious and the kind of um, magical and transformative, and that's why I turned to art, and I feel the same way. Mm. But So I feel like um, I think I'm will I read that bit at the end.
2: That's beautiful, yeah.
3: Okay. Part of me thinks all true artists have an apprehension of the holy, whether they call it that or not. By holiness, I mean living with a sense that redemptive meaning shimmers somewhere beyond our reach. In a reality possible just outside our own. It's gods or ghosts who are in possession of the mighty stuff of art. And we have to wrestle them for it. We only ever glimpse it fleetingly, but we long for it nonetheless.
2: I love that. The idea that you have to wrestle.
3: Because it's a tension, right? It's always this tension. And you and the thing about being an artist is you live in that uncomfortable space. Yes. Like really I feel like that's the role of the artist is to Stay in that place of discomfort that we don't we don't like to occupy, but that's why we need artists to occupy it for us um, yes. and to kind of keep nudging us back into this uncertain space. Yes, because that's where you find out things.
2: Yeah, that's where you learn. Thank you. I think that would be a really good place to stop. Thank you. Thanks, Helen.
3: Much. Thank you. So much. And I i know that Chris uh referred to them earlier, that the lockdown, the, Helen's latest lockdown diaries, which are in the monthly, made me burst out laughing and then made me cry. So really everyone should go read those. And your new book, I cannot wait.
1: <laughs> Such a treat to be joined by you, Charlotte, <laughs> and to hear more about your wonderful book, The Luminous Solution. And to you, Helen, thank you as always. I think it seems fitting that we end this evening surrounded as we are by readers, surrounded as we are by our people, to reflect on something that Charlotte has written a long time ago and it's always a line that I like to use actually at dinner parties. I hope you don't mind, Charlotte, but I always imagine you saying, "Ah, imagine what they're going to say about these girls in their old age. (laughs) And it seems to me... (laughs) that there you two are and i reckon the whole of melbourne the whole of australia are going to be talking about you charlotte wood and you helen garner for a very very long time and i'm delighted that i got to eavesdrop on a little of this conversation to all of you out there do keep safe do keep reading and we are delighted that you joined us this evening good night everyone thank you
3: Bye-bye,
0: everybody. Thank you. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to Air News or to receive our free monthly print newsletter for The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.